Last year, we spent most of the year telling the story of the Old Testament, and uh, right at Christmas, obviously, the birth of Christ, and we launched now into a series about the life of Christ. Uh, we're on a trajectory. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, his, his birth, the Magi, last week, a few years later. We're on a trajectory to get to the resurrection by Easter, so you know what's coming in the next few months. There's more information about the life of Christ than I can deliver in this setting in the amount of weeks that I have to get to Easter. Uh, We'll offset uh, uh, those stories with our podcast. Uh, Season 2 of the podcast will launch this week. Uh, And uh, the first podcast of this series takes us from this Christmas period and fills in some blanks uh, that I didn't have the opportunity to talk about during the, the last few weeks. Uh, For example, what happens between the birth of Christ and the Magi? There's several events in there. Podcast number one talks about the dedication, talks about a man named Simeon you may not know about, and a woman called a prophet uh, in the New Testament, of all things. And uh, her name is Anna, or in the Hebrew, Hannah. And uh, you'll uh, get a lot of interesting information on podcast number one. It'll drop this week. Uh, if you don't know how to get the podcast, see the people at the information desk and they'll help you help you get the podcast. It'll fill in all the blanks. Uh, next Sunday, Pastor Josh will be talking about Jesus' first sermon. Uh, Jeremy will follow it with the first uh, uh, miracle, the water to wine at the wedding of Cana. And uh, then I'll come back and uh, talk about uh, chapter 2 and 3 of John, which is Nicodemus and the cleansing of the temple. I'm fascinated by the story as I'm studying it, and I promise you uh, that last Sunday in January, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rock your world a little bit. Uh, this morning, uh, we are uh, in that uh, pre-ministry stage. I'll talk about that in just a second. I think all of us get, when we turn to the New Testament, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling basically the same story of how God became king. So, We get that the four Gospels are biographical material telling us about the life of of Jesus. What I want to challenge you in these weeks is, what are they telling you about the life of Jesus? Now, we all know there's a Jesus. We all know that it's historical fact. What are they telling you about Jesus? That's what I want you to begin to, to look for in the text. Are the four biographers just trying to say, okay, okay, uh, Mark, we've got to remember as many things as we can remember of what Jesus did, and let's just, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this, then Jesus did this. Let's get all the stuff down on paper that Jesus did. I know they're not doing that because John has already told us at the end of John, we only wrote certain things down. If we wrote down everything Jesus did, the world cannot contain the books that would be written, John says. So they have intentionally only written down some of the things that Jesus did. They wrote down the things that form the story that they want to tell. So why did they select the things they selected? What are they trying to tell us about Jesus? Are they trying to tell us something very specific about who this man is. So as you're reading through here with me in the, in the scriptures I'm going to put up, how are they presenting Jesus? That's what I want you to ask yourself. How are they showing you this man Jesus' life? What are they trying to tell you 
about Jesus. All right, let's get right to it. We know from the beginning, Genesis chapter number 1, 2, and 3, we know that humans were created to be living images of God. Now, we've all got that as a congregation. We've talked about that for years here. We know that God created Adam and Eve in his image to be king and queen of the earth. If you rule, have dominion, they're in charge. They walk with God. They have a relationship. They're living images of God, like angled mirrors reflecting God to a created material world, and they're reflecting glory and praise and worship from world back up to God. And we know by the time we get to the third chapter that the humans decided they wanted to live with a different purpose than that. They, they said, nah, that's not what we want to do. And they were tempted to be more than that or do something different than that. They wanted to call the shots. So a running subplot that's going through the Bible is that every person who tries to run their own life in the Bible ends up making a complete mess out of their life. That's a running subplot through the Bible that anyone who says, God, I've got this, step back, that person is going to make an absolute mess out of their life. When you tell God to take his hands off of your life, that you can call the shots, you're headed for trouble. If the Bible teaches nothing else, that's one of its subplots. The converse is that every person who clings to God in faith and says, God, you're the Lord of my life, I submit to your authority in my life, that person's life, we call that a covenant relationship, that person's life is blessed beyond measure. Those are part of the threads woven through the text. The gospel writers have positioned us now to see Jesus as a man who is, at last, a living image of God. Now that's where we started. We left that behind at Eden. And we haven't really seen much of that at all. We've seen people whose lives, they're people of faith, they're God followers. But if you learned anything from our Old Testament series, those people's lives are a train wreck. I would never ask you to parent like Abraham or Jacob. I would never ask you to treat your brothers like Joseph or Judah in that relationship. There are no healthy marriages for me to show you over there. There are no great parents for me to appeal to over there. What there are, though, is there are people in a very broken world and, 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 and foreign environment to us who had deep and profound faith in God. As, as broken as their lives were, they had deep and profound faith in God, and they entered into a covenant with God, and we're praying that God's going to work this whole mess out. Now, we come to the New Testament, we're presented with Jesus Christ, and the gospel writers are going to present him as a restored living image of God. We now have a human, finally, who is what humans were supposed to be. A human that loves, a human that reflects God, a human that's truly good, a human that does no, no sin. We, we have a human in a perfect relationship with God. A man modeling what a life looks like when a life is fully controlled by Almighty God. I know that's not our lives. Something we're look, working forward, trying for, striving for. Jesus was all that I have said. Now there are some clearly defined steps that we can take as we prepare 
for a life of serving God. One of the things that our tradition gets is that Jesus is God. Your tradition gets that. You get that. The thing you struggle with the most is that Jesus is actually a man. And it's hard for us to put him in a human context. You know, I mean, did he get a headache? You know, I mean, did, did, did he fight with his brothers? I mean, we, those human aspects of Jesus are the thing we struggle with more in our tradition than the, the aspects of his deity. But as a man, now living in a, a, a perfect God-controlled life, uh, he hasn't done any public ministry yet. He hasn't done anything as a spiritual leader yet in a public way. And so at this point in the story, uh, we're, we're supposed to be asking ourselves a question. You're going to see Jesus take some very distinct steps to launch his ministry. But those steps are all predicated on one big thesis question. And the one big thesis question is, who's really in control of your life? Now this is why I want you to know that the gospel writers have presented Jesus as a man fully controlled by God. Put our thesis question up here. Who's really in control of your life? Now, if you can settle this question this morning, you're on a good path. But this is the question you have to settle before all others. Who's really calling the shots? No, seriously, who's really in control? Not who's in control on Sunday morning. Who's in control of your life? What does that really look like between you and God? For Jesus, I can answer this question. God is 100% in control of his life. His human life. Just like your human life. Now, let's run on the timeline real quick. We've been studying the birth of Christ, and that was Christmas. We talked about the Magi. We just podcasted on the dedication. We're about to podcast on the flight to Egypt and, and the wise men. Uh, birth and childhood phase. Bible talks a little about it, but very little. It's only one really childhood scene. We'll talk about that in the podcast upcoming. Now we move into a different section this morning. This morning we're, we're leaving childhood behind, and the next passages of Scripture in the Gospels have fast-forwarded 30 years, and they start presenting Jesus as a grown man suddenly. And when they fast-forward to his manhood, all of the immediate texts are preparation for ministry. He hadn't done ministry yet. He hadn't gone public yet that he's the God's king, that, but it's coming. It's coming very rapidly now. And so there are several passages that are preparatory they talk about what Jesus did in order to get ready for God to use his life as God wants to use it. Uh, as I've tried to distill it down, I've distilled it down into basically three key activities that were preparatory in the life of Jesus Christ before he really became a public spiritual leader. Now here's what we know. Whatever God's about to do on planet earth, it's going to be big. Jeremy will talk about that in a couple of weeks. It's his biggest creation. Whatever God's about to do in the life of Christ, it's huge for history. It's as big as Genesis 1 for us. And whatever God's about to do for creation, Jesus is the person who's going to do it. 
So when I say God, I mean it's going to happen through the life of Jesus. God is going to do something for planet Earth through the person of Jesus Christ. And whatever Jesus is about to do down here on planet Earth for us, we know from the text that he did three things before he did that thing. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What are the three preparatory, preparing for ministry steps that Jesus took to get his life in that track where God can do everything he wants to do through the life of his servant, Jesus Christ? And the first thing Jesus did involves participating in discipleship. Shocker root of Cornerstone, right? He's participating in discipleship. John and Mark now skip the Christmas story completely. So if you go, if you, John 1, Mark 1, uh, they go right to the adulthood of Jesus Christ. They don't even talk about the uh, 12-year-old in the temple. They don't talk about the Magi. They're not talking about the manger, the shepherds, etc. They go right to adulthood. Let, let me give you Mark, for example. For example, Mark will structure the story in this way. Mark chapter 1 and verse number 1 the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He launches right to his adulthood and said, here's the beginning of the good, good news I want to tell you. Verse number 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Matthew does this to you five times in the Christmas story. And what I want you to do, Bible student, is I want you to train your ears that every time a gospel writer a new testament writer says as it is written in the prophets as it is written in isaiah as said jeremiah i want your ears to be listening for that because they're telling you this is not necessarily a new story this is the old story we've been telling from the old testament we're just bringing it up to date with a fresh chapter as isaiah said this would happen boom 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 now it's about to happen right before your very eyes. This isn't something different and wild and unexpected God did. This is exactly what God told us he was going to do. And now he has done it. So verse 2 says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so, who is this messenger? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, it's the Southland, and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, all of the writers start the adult life of Jesus with a backstory. In order to talk about Jesus, they back up one step and they all reintroduce a Christmas character to you. Now, he just had a cameo appearance in the Christmas story. He wasn't talking yet. Do you remember the babe that leaped in the womb of Elizabeth? That little baby that was introduced in the Christmas story, we now fast forward 30 years and the gospel writers are presenting John the Baptist, the little leaping baby in the womb of Elizabeth. When, when Mary and Jesus came into her presence, the baby was leaping for joy. Fantastic message, by the way. You should go and listen to that one about Mary 
as the Ark of the Covenant, okay? It's very pertinent to something we're going to talk about in a few weeks. Now, that little baby that leapt in the womb of Elizabeth, that little baby is now a grown man named John. Uh, John the Baptist. Uh, not be confused with the other thousands of Johns that lived at the time. It's a common name in Israel. John the Baptist. Now, we discover when the Gospels open, John is out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing. So let me just tell you a few things that should be obvious to you. John's daddy was a priest. Do you remember this? And in the Christmas story, his daddy goes into the temple and he lights the incense and he's in there. Uh, It's his turn to go in and minister in the holy place. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, John, I know your wife Elizabeth is barren and y'all are of old age, but I've prophesied through the prophets that a forerunner to Christ, the Messiah, will come. And your son's going to be that forerunner to Jesus, to the Messiah, to the king that I'm going to send into the world. And your son's going to have a special mission. You will call his name John. Remember that? And so he goes home and they conceive a child and Sure enough, just as the angel said, and it happens that Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, so when she leaves Nazareth to go south to help her cousin deliver the baby, that Mary begins to show, so that when Mary gets back home to Nazareth, suddenly she's been away from home for many months, and Joseph realizes his fiance is carrying a child that is not his. High drama in the Christmas story, okay? And it involves these two families that are related to each other, uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is a priest, and he has the privileges of birthright and the privileges of a high honor and standing in society. Now, here's what we learn immediately, that John has not followed the privilege of his birthright to be a priest in the temple. Instead, he has seen that it's a higher calling to dress in camel hair and stand out in the desert and, and proclaim uh, the, the Messiah is coming. You guys better get your head screwed on straight and repent of your sins because the king of the world is on his way and God's going to do something big and you better get your act together. That's John's message paraphrased, Bobby style. And uh, John the Baptist embraces his role of a prophet. Now he's a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. Thus saith the Lord, this is what God says to you, For 400 years, there have been no voice from God. For 400 years. Now, do you remember the Old Testament study we did? When we closed Malachi, that was it. God won't speak through a prophet for 400 years like this. And people are like, well, is God done with us? Is he going to do anything? And then all of a sudden, here comes John. And John is out there like Elijah, uh, like one of the great bombastic prophets. huge personality, scared of neither man nor beast, pointing his finger at kings and saying, repent of your sins and you shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife and just dressing everybody down publicly. He's bold as a lion, okay? So bold to get his head cut off over it, okay? But he's bold as a lion and he calls the nation of Israel to repentance. God is speaking again now. John is out in the wilderness. Now, there's water. Jordan River is running into the, to the Dead Sea. But it's a desert kind of arid environment out there in a place below Jericho, down the mountain from Jerusalem, almost in the country of Jordan. Maybe it was in the country of Jordan at the time, although there wasn't a Jordan at the time. But what's today Jordan on the other side of the Jordan River? A place called Bethabara or called Bethany in the Bible. 
Uh, you know Bethlehem, Beth, house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. Beth is house in Hebrew. So Beth Abara is the place of the ford. Not like Ford and Chevy, but like you would wade across a river ford. Fording a river. Beth Abara is the place of the crossing. Now, for those of you going to Israel uh, in a few months, I'm going to take you down to Beth Abara. And if you want to get baptized, we'll have a baptism service right there and, and uh, have a nice time. I'm going to take you right to the place where John was baptizing at Beth Abara. And the place of the crossing, it's where the children of Israel came down from the mountains of Jordan and they walked across on dry land, if you remember the story, with Joshua into the promised land and they camped below Jericho right before they began the conquest of Israel, the place of the crossing where Israel crossed the Jordan River. Now John is down there baptizing, it's not too far from Jerusalem, it's really close to Jericho. John's down there baptizing and people are coming out to listen to his messages. He's an outdoor speaker and he has disciples. Let me just read a little bit. Mark 1, 7. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. After me, somebody powerful is coming. The straps of whose sandals... I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Well, that's like real servant work right there. He said, I'm not even worthy to be a servant like that. I'm not even worthy to unlace this man's sandals. I baptize you with water. That's true. Water unto repentance. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to just clue you into several things that you may not have known about these texts. John the Baptist was a disciple maker, and I know this because all of the stories that are written about this, all of these stories tell us that John has disciples. The disciples are out there at the baptism. The disciples are coming to hear him preach. They're being baptized by John. And among those people who are John's disciples are people like Andrew, and his brother Peter, and John, and his fishing brother James. These are the, the roots of the, the disciples. They're rooted in John and his baptism. When Matthew presents Jesus coming down to John's baptism, Matthew is presenting to you Jesus as one of John's Galilean disciples one of his Galilean followers. Jesus has traveled 70 miles on foot from Nazareth to the Transjordan, going south, southeast, 70 miles on foot across rolling mountains and rocky terrain to find John the Baptist and be included among his disciples and receive baptism at his hands. Jesus is standing there with the other people who have come to repent of their sins. Now don't, don't panic on me. I know Jesus has no sins to repent of. But what I want you to know is he's standing with sinners. He's identifying with them. He's standing shoulder to shoulder with his other countrymen who have come to hear John's message and be a part of this movement that is happening in Israel 
the movement for the expectation of God's coming King. Now what happens next uh, in Matthew 3.13. So let me read from Matthew. Matthew 3.13. Some fascinating conversations here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. What happens next is some language that's tough to explain. Matthew 3.14. Jesus is coming to John and says, I want to be baptized. But John tried to deter him. Now that's something you'll never hear at Cornerstone. Hi, Pastor Bobby, I'd like to be baptized. No way, man. Sorry. Let me see if I can talk you out of this. I think there's other things you should be doing. No, we don't talk people out of following Jesus. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Following God's uh, obedience to God in baptism. We encourage it. So this is fascinating to me as a, as a leader. When I read these words, Jesus saying to John, Okay, John, I'm here. I need to be baptized. But John tries to deter him, saying, No, let's reverse this. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, for it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said, John, it's the right thing to do. It's proper to do. It's what God wants us to do. And then Matthew simply records for us, then John consented. Uh, That was all the argument John needed. This is what God's will is. Now, I'd like to just comment on this, and I don't have time. I wish it were true of you and I that the only argument you and I needed for a course of action is this is the will of God for your life. I wish we could say to you, Brenna, here's what I need you to do. And Brenna says, why, Pastor Bobby? I say, because this is God's will for your life. Brenna, I wish that was enough for you and I. And I'm not insulting you because we're all this way. I wish that was enough that you would say to me, Pastor Bobby, this is God's will. I'm on it then. I'm on it then. You know, J.D., this is something you and I have talked about a lot. Being sensitive to hearing the voice of God and discerning His will. And when you know God has spoken, simply saying, yes. Here is your servant, Lord. I will obey. Now, for those of you who are more than just spiritual infants and who are really growing into some adulthood here spiritually, there's your mark right there. That's the goal. That's what you're looking for in your own life. That when you know God has said, this is what I want you to do, you see, here's my spiritual immaturity. Let me be transparent. I want to argue with him. I I want to deter him. I want to John the Baptist him right here, and I want to say, God, seriously, that's not what you want to do. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one who does this with God. And and this is a, a place in all of our lives where when we're hearing God move us, and I don't mean like audible voices. I'm, not, I'm talking about you hear the inner voice of the Holy Spirit saying, talk to this person right here and just show them some. Just pray with this person. This person needs something right now. And I've sent you into Walmart today to talk to them. The doterant can wait. I sent you here to talk to this person. You know, not arguing with God in the middle of Walmart and saying, no, God, deodorant's more important and toothpaste and Tide. I've got a whole list here. God says, no, I've arranged for this person to cross your path right now. Talk. And if we don't, we miss the moments. We miss the opportunities. Okay? So I just want to say to those who are more than spiritual infants, for those of you who are mature, this is what you're looking for in your own life. 
that quick response to God that says, yes. Now, Matthew wants you to know that this bold, bombastic John the Baptist now pivots to an attitude of submission and deference in the presence of Jesus Christ. They're trying to tell you this John the Baptist that is the prophet leading the country, he's about to transfer power to Jesus Christ. There's about to be a power shift in spiritual leadership for Israel. And now I'm going to go to the book of John as John tells this part of the story. John the Baptist is speaking in John chapter 1 verse 26. He says, I baptize with water, John replies, but among you stands one you do not know. Now at this point, nobody knows Jesus is the Son of God, the King of the world, the King of Israel. They just know him as one of John's disciples. He's one of the many in the crowd. At this point, I don't think John the Baptist knows that Jesus is God's King. I think he has respect for Jesus. They know each other. They're related through like cousins, second cousins. But I don't think John's fully locked in yet. But he's going to be shortly. What John is saying is from my disciples, God's about to raise up the Messiah, the King of Israel. I am the one spoken of by the prophets as the forerunner of the King of God that he's sending to make this world right. So from among you, now, now let me read the language again, 27. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, the other side of Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Je- next day, Jesus is coming back to the meeting. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he's becoming convinced. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me. Because, in fact, he is before me. Matthew 3. Let me record it from Matthew words now. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful. Said slightly different. One who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, let me see if I can explain what John the Baptist is saying. He's telling every one of his disciples, every one of his listeners, that one of his disciples is about to arise as superior to all. That's what he's saying. One who comes after me, more powerful, greater, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. So Jesus' ministry derived from his initial enrollment as a disciple of John and as a recipient of baptism at John's hands. When you and I in English read phrases like, the one who follows me, the one who comes after me, uh, in English, we we think incorrectly. We think in time, time or sequence. I am first, the person who comes second, the person who comes third. We're thinking sequence when we think the one who comes after me. But in Greek, that's not what this means. It's not about somebody arriving later in time. The same language is found in other biblical texts, and I'll just let the Bible explain the Bible. Matthew 4, 19, here's the same language. Come after me. What does it mean here? Same word. Come 
follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. What is Jesus calling people to do? To be his disciples. The same language is found in Matthew 10, 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, come after me, is not worthy of me. What is Jesus talking about? It's about discipleship. It's about living a Christian life. Uh, it happens again, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Come after me. So when John the Baptist is using this phrase to come after, uh, it means to follow. It means he who comes after me from my disciples, from my followers, somebody's about to emerge as God's anointed king of Israel. Now Jesus was John's disciple. The gospel reveals that Jesus then decided, Jesus submitted to John's leadership. Now this is something I really wrestled with as I was preparing. Jesus submitted to John's leadership. That whole exchange at the baptism where Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me, is Jesus taking John's hand and putting it right here. It's Jesus saying, John, I'm going to submit to your baptism. I want to identify with the message you preach, with the disciples, with who you are. I want to come under your ministry and your authority. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. When we baptize, we let the disciple makers baptize the disciples. Or one of the pastoral staff baptizes the, the, the baptismal candidate. I don't think anyone who's ever been baptized went down in the baptism waters and said, okay, today I'm getting baptized and I'm so superior to the one who baptizes me. I don't know if anyone I've ever met has said to me as we are baptizing, Pastor, thank you for baptizing me, but I'm really much more mature spiritually than you are. Because by the very act of being baptized by an authority, a spiritual leader in your life, or your disciple maker, you're, you're saying, this is an act of obedience. This is what God's will is for my life, to be baptized. And I am submitting to someone else's authority in my life and asking them to help me become uh, what God wants me to be. Help me with spiritual formation and spiritual transformation. It's just astounding to me that Jesus did this. He came to John. He puts John's hand over his own head and says, John, I'm going to submit to your authority over my life, and I want you to baptize me. And John's like, dude, it should be the other way around. Jesus says, no, it needs to be this way because this is the will of God. This is what, this is what God wants us to do, and it's okay. I, I, it, it's fine. I have no problem, even as the Son of God, Letting you baptize me in this Jordan River. Now, here's what I just want to say a couple of things before I move forward. John had in, Jesus had incredible respect for John. This is documented in the Scripture. All of the apostles that Jesus is going to now take, they're John's disciples, most of them, and he's going to take them and make them his own disciples and take them up to Galilee, and they're going to really be, be the characters you know of in the New Testament. All of these men and women have incredible respect for John the Baptist. They look at John as the one who was their spiritual mentor, who initiated spiritual formation in their lives and preparing them for what God had to do through their lives on this earth. Now, I just want to make the case to you. 
I know you're some awesome people with some awesome spiritual knowledge, but even if you're top-notch and you're coming to Cornerstone, you know, from a lifetime in other churches that are sound Bible-teaching churches, we're going to ask you to submit to a period of discipleship here. Don't, don't fight against that. Don't say, well, I'm smarter than the one baptizing me. Just say, hey, if this is what God's will is for my life, let me just say it this way. If God led you to Cornerstone, he knew this was going to be the process. Because that is the process here, okay? So if God led you here, he wants you to be a part of a discipleship group where somebody who is a spiritual parent is helping you with spiritual formation. Christianity is a team sport. It is not an individual sport. It can, it's not something you can do. You cannot develop yourself alone in a vacuum into spiritual maturity. You need someone who will sit with you an hour or two a week, pray with you, get in the Word of God with you, and help guide your life towards spiritual transformation. So I'm going to ask you the question, close this section. First thing Jesus did in preparation for ministry is he became John's disciple. Why? Because it was the will of God. That's why. And you know what I can say about Jesus? God's 100% in control of his life. Okay? The second thing Jesus did to get ready for a life of ministry is baptism. Now, this is a much easier section. The first appearance of the adult Jesus in the Gospels, the first time the adult Jesus steps onto the stage in any of the stories, the adult Jesus is at his baptism. That's where he makes his appearance in the Gospel accounts. For Jesus to make a 70-mile trek on foot across the country to the Transjordan to be baptized by John the Baptist meant that baptism was important to Jesus. Why is baptism important to Jesus? Because it's important to God. It's God's will for our lives to follow in baptism. Can we all agree on that? Okay. Baptism needs to be important to us, as important to us as it is to God. That's all I want to say. And when you embrace that, that baptism is important to God. You say, yeah, but it's just kind of strange to go get wet and, and do this thing. Listen, I didn't invent it. I'm just the pastor. I, I didn't originate this. And you'll have to take this up with God and Jesus and John and all of them when you see them. Uh, I just know that when Jesus they, was questioned about this, Jesus said, this is God's will for us and we're going to do it. Yeah, but you're the son of God. Yeah, but I'm a man and I'm standing in solidarity with humanity and even I'm going to do it. Okay, Bobby Harrell says that's good enough. Okay, if the Son of God says he'll obey the Father and be baptized, then this converted sinner be glad to do it. Okay, and I want you to just embrace that. Many of you still haven't been baptized. This is your year, okay? This is your year. Uh, Let's get to the place where you're ready to be baptized and follow that step of obedience. Listen, I know a lot of people who, who really want God's blessings in their life in a material way, in a spiritual way, in an emotional way, and yet they don't tithe. H- how can God bless you? You don't honor Him with your wealth. They've never been baptized. You're wanting God to do what for you? You're not even taking the baby step of obedience to say you're the Lord of my life. All I'm trying to say to you, and not, not in a hostile way, all I'm trying to say to you is part of what's holding our lives from being all that we want them to be is us. We're, we're not doing the things that God requires of us to do to put us in that best standing with God. 
And if any of the things I'm talking about today are on your list, let's get them done. Let's get them done. Let's baptize here in a few weeks anyone who needs to be baptized. Let's get you in, involved in the discipleship process, wherever that may be, as a leader or student or, or, or whatever. Uh, Steve McCoy, the one who wrote the curriculum we use called Small Circle, Steve McCoy is our friend, and he will be here in a few weeks, and he's going to meet with all of you disciple makers, and he's going to actually explain his curriculum, and he's going to poll you and ask you to critique his curriculum. He's never done this in his history. He's coming to Cornerstone to find a group of disciple makers who know what small circle is and have used it, and he's going to ask you to tell him what he can do to make it better. Now I want to ask you, have you ever read a book and then had the author show up at your house and say, can you critique this and help me be a better author? Now that's the kind of humility that marks a spiritual leader in my book right there. Now, he'll be here in a few weeks, and he's going to meet with you guys, and you should guys are going to just going to have a blast. If you haven't done that, then get involved in discipleship. And I'll get to the last part in, in just a minute. Let me read Matthew three sixteen. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment something happened. Now, we've been waiting to see who the Son of God is and who the King of the world is and who this one is that God has told us. In the Old Testament, I'm sending my fixer, I'm sending my king, I'm sending my guy. We've all been waiting to find out who it is. And now we're finding out who it is. Jesus was, now this won't happen to you when we baptize. It's a little different for you. <clears throat> but, but the elements of pleasing God will still be there. He was baptized and when he came up out of the water, <clears throat> heaven was opened. Now I don't want you to think of heaven as a faraway place. They can see it. They can see into it. Heaven is a different dimension that is not physical but spiritual. You say, well, heaven's way out there. I, I've even taught that before and I was wrong. Heaven's right here. If you could just pull back the curtain. Heaven is wherever God is. It's his space. You say, well, where's God? God's not a billion miles out into the cold solar system. God speaks to me. I know he's here. God guides our lives. I know he's near. You feel the warmth of his presence. You hear the voice of his spirit. And you're learning something that heaven and earth can actually touch and overlap in the life of a believer. A little more about that later. I saw heaven open. And I saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Now, uh, what we're learning from the Scripture <clears throat> is that Jesus pleased the Father through his obedience. John pleased the Father through his obedience. And that Jesus is going to baptize his disciples with something other than water. Now, he's going to baptize them in water, too, it appears. <clears throat> but he's going to do more than that. That's what the text is saying. John baptized with water. Jesus is going to baptize us with the Spirit of Almighty God. And to dispense the Spirit, one must have the Spirit. If you said, Pastor, could I have some of that sweet tea? Well, I'd have to have a picture of it. I'd have to have some to give you some. Now, the proclamation has already been said that when God's Messiah shows up, he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Well, then we have to know he has it to give. 
So at the baptism, God does something for us. Heaven opens, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Why is it important? Because you've got to know that when you come to Jesus, He can give you the Spirit of the living God inside of your life. You have to know that He has that power to give to you the Spirit of God. And I wish I could wax eloquent on this for a few minutes, but time is not my friend. But just get to the latter part of the Gospels where Jesus looks at His disciples and... Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. You're like, well, that's weird. Well, the Spirit's like wind. This is what it means. Breath, wind. And he has the Spirit to give. He is God in the form of a man. He tells his disciples, go and be uh, tarry until you're endued with power from up on high. The Spirit coming upon your life is the essential part now of being able to do this ministry so now uh, that's not a surprise to us we've been in the old testament here's what the old testament said isaiah says here's my servant whom i uphold my chosen one in whom i delight i will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations i want you to know everything you're learning about jesus now has already been promised to us in the old testament we're just updating the story and saying yep that's what isaiah said would happen yes here is our man right here uh, uh jesus life is marked by the outpouring of the holy spirit now jesus doesn't need to repent of any sins i get that and john's baptism is the baptism of repentance so let me tell you what i think is happening here jesus was willing to stand in solidarity to john's call to repentance By standing there and being a part of that, Jesus is not saying, I need to repent of my sin. Jesus is saying, this is the right message. This is the message humanity needs to hear, and I endorse and support this call to repentance. Because the call to repentance is really saying to God, what I opened with a thesis, God, you have complete control of my life. God, I I want to do this, and I've been involved in this, and I know this doesn't please you. God, repentance is turning. God, I repent, and I want to follow your will for my life that's putting God completely in control of your life repentance and the lordship of God in your life they're one in the same really you're saying I turn from what I want to do and God I'm willing to follow you and do what you want me to do Jesus is standing in solidarity with everyone who is ready for the kingdom of God to come on this earth that's what's happening Jesus is standing in solidarity with anyone and everyone who is ready for a new beginning for humanity. If you know humanity is broken and this world's broken and needs a fix, Jesus says, I stand with you who know that and who are ready for the fix to come and ready to get this place uh, corrected. Jesus says, I stand in solidarity with these people from ancient Israel who are ready for a fresh start with God. If you're ready for a fresh start with God the second Sunday of the new year, then Jesus stands with you. He wants you to have a fresh start and a new beginning and a clean slate with God and a way to move forward. You see, if Jesus is to be our representative, then Jesus must first stand with us. And when he stands here in these texts, what he's trying to say to you is, God is in complete control of my life. I am the living image of of God and when he does what God wants him to do in obedience what happens heaven opens the spirit descends and God speaks it's a rare appearance of the Trinity in one moment now 
one of the few other times you'll remember the Trinity all appearing at once is in the creation. Uh, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep and God said, uh, uh, let there be light. And there was light. You can see the Trinity at work in Genesis 1. It's very rare to see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all acting in one scene at one moment of time like this. It's like all of the Godhead appears and says, yes, we're about to get a new start for humanity. Yes, we're about to get a, the thing I've always been wanting to do is now being launched. The hope and salvation of my creation, the humans, planet Earth, it's now under, underway. Yes to that. What's happened with Jesus is Jesus as a disciple has become greater than his disciple maker. Uh, this is great. This is what I'm praying is going to happen at Cornerstone. One day I'm going to go be with the Lord. And what I pray is the disciples we've made here go far beyond what I've ever been able to do. I'm going to meet with uh, 14 of our greatest disciples in Asia this week. And I'm going to look them in the eye and tell them, go far beyond what Bobby Harrell could ever do for Jesus Christ. You keep going. Go further. Go farther. Do more for God. Jesus is John's disciple, but now John is saying the one who's coming after me is greater than I. The disciple is becoming greater than the disciple maker. And now the focus, the spotlight was on John. That all the gospels do this at the baptism. And now watch the spotlight follow Jesus home. As Jesus leaves the water, the spotlight's going to go just like this. And the spotlight's going to follow Jesus for the rest of the story. And all the gospel writers have done this to you. Jesus was baptized. Let me hasten to my end now. So Jesus was a disciple. Jesus was baptized. As soon as he was baptized, he comes up out of the water. And he immediately faces testing. This is the third preparation for serving God. Part of preparing yourself to, uh, to serve God is experiencing difficulty. Now, I wish this weren't true, and I wish I could preach a different closing to you right now. I wish I could say to you, part of preparing to be a great uh, disciple maker for Jesus and to have kids that turn out to love Jesus, part of doing that is playing, playing golf and tennis. Uh, laying on a beach chair with a coconut in your hand. But unfortunately, it's not true. Part of putting some spiritual muscle on your frame and maturity in your heart is going through difficult times. There is no other way. You know, I was, I was flipping the channels last night because there was nothing worth watching on. And as I flipped through, I saw some kind of special forces Navy SEAL program where they took a bunch of people who were just regular old Joes like you and I, men and women, and they decided they wanted to do something difficult, so they're going to take them through like the Navy, a special force. Did anybody see that last night? Yeah, I was just flipping through, and I saw that, and I'm like, oh, this is not going to end well. <laughs> These people are going to be puking in their, on their boots here in a few minutes, and this is not, there are going to be tears and broken nails and blood. This is not going to end well you say why in the world would any sane person who could be at Whataburger <laughs> groveling in the dirt and swimming and drowning and push-upping and sit-upping why well because they want to prove that they can they want to see what they're made of you can't see what you're made of at Whataburger 
you can see what you're made out of through testing, through difficulty, through doing something hard. Many times we've recommended to you a book written by two teenage Christian boys, twins, I think they are, uh, called Do Hard Things. Uh, why? why? Why should we not take the easy path? Because you need to put some muscle on your frame. Uh, that's why we go to the gym. <laughs> that's why you're in there jumping and bouncing and dribbling and shooting and exercising your body. You have put some, put some, you have to do trials. Working out is a trial. All right, let me get this settled very quickly. Jesus' special relationship with God has been declared. This is my son. So immediately, Satan steps into the picture to see if he can drive a wedge between the father and the son. When Adam and Eve were created and God said, these are my living images, Satan stepped right in and said, let me see if I can drive a wedge between the creation and the creator. They are related, they are tight, and I want to see if I can drive a wedge in there and push these people apart. Let's see if I can get one party to turn on the other party and act independent of the other party. That's his modus operandi. This is my son. Watch Satan come in here and say, okay, I'm going to get him then. Now, it's curious that the Bible says, and the Spirit, who does, Spirit is on him, the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. So you say, is the Spirit doing this? Is God tempting Jesus, or is Satan tempting Jesus? The answer is yes, and I'll deal with that in, in just, just a moment. Matthew 4, 1, quickly now. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, no food, he was hungry. Yeah, no joke. Now, is the Bible saying you need to fast 40 days? No, there's nothing written here about that. It's just telling you what happened in the life of Christ. That's all. It's just saying that it was a time of testing for him, of privation, of doing without food in a wilderness place out there with the wild animals. And the tempter came to him, verse 3, and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, I just want to pause here. Could Jesus have done that? You're right. He's God <laughs> in a man's body. And he could have said, I want wheat, I want white, I want French, I want Parmesan crusted, I want... Yes, absolutely, he could have. Uh, you say, why would, why would anybody be hungry if they're God? Because this is the will of God for his life. No, why would anybody suffer if they could have a life of ease? Because suffering is part of God's will for our life. Because it's the only way we know if we're really faithful or not. I know I can bench press a certain amount. You know how I know? I go and do it every once in a while. Do you know how you can survive some hardship? You've survived some hardship. You know how we believe in the resurrection? I buried my father. You say, are you sad? I'll see him again. We buried a sister. It's heartbreaking, and yet awe-inspiring hope at the same time. It's a graves-to-garden moment, Jeff, where you're saying it's gut-wrenching, but... If I can use, be very personal for a moment. How do you guys know you really believed in the resurrection until now? 
your faith has been put to the test. And you've stood right here and you've declared, Jeff, to the whole world, I will see my sister again. Okay. Okay. I believe Jeff believes in the resurrection. I believe it. Say why? Because through a trial, he's proclaimed it to be true. That's how you know. Let me ask you, how do you know? <laughs> Where's our newlyweds at? <laughs> I'll, I'll be nice to the newlyweds. I'll look at the old weds. Yeah. How do you know you guys really love each other? Because you've been through some hardship and you're still together. That's how you know. How do you know your parents still love you? Are you kidding me? Do you know all the crap you've done? They still feed you and clothe you and house you and give you a cell phone and gas money and insurance and braces and are you kidding me? They demonstrate their love for you every day through their actions. Uh, through trials is how we know things are real, to be honest with you. It's the real test of what is what. So now the, Satan says, I'm going to trip him up. And God says, and I'm going to allow it. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. James chapter 1. God does not tempt you to sin, to fall, to get hurt. God doesn't do that. But Satan does do that. And sometimes God will allow him to do that for a limited space and season, stepping in to rescue you when he needs to, just so you'll know what you're made out of. Anybody here ever lost a job? How do you know you can find another job? Because you've had to go find one. How do you know God can provide for you? Let me say something to you. How do you know God can take... If I give 10 or 20% of my wealth to the church, how do you know God is really going to step in and, and replace that in my life? Because I've been doing it for 55 years. And he's never failed one time. Listen, there are stories coming out of the congregation just in the last few weeks where people have just said, okay, I've never done this. And I'm terrified. Here I go. And within a week, all that money's been replaced. You say, what in the world? Just sometimes you've got to just do the push-ups to know if you can do them. Just to know what's real. Just to know what, what's what. Now, Jesus says to Satan, quote scripture at him, okay? I don't have time to talk about how to deal with temptation in a full sermon here. But just know that when Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus quotes scripture. And Jesus talks to Satan. And sometimes I do too. And I don't talk kindly to him. Okay? And I say, I just tell him what's what. Now, as a human, I'm no match for him. But as God's child, God is more than adequate. <laughs> okay? And the power is in the word of God and in the name of Jesus. And there may be a time when you need to get alone and you need to say, Satan, get off my back. You and these demons, whatever you're afflicted, get out of here. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave me and my kids alone and sometimes you just need to get get serious talking but that's a whole another message jesus answered him it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes out of the mouth of god all right so devil says i'll take a different tack then the devil took him to the holy city and to stand on the highest point of the temple if you're the son of god throw yourself down off the temple just take the leap for the scripture has already been written about the Son of God. Now, you may not believe the Old Testament, but Satan does. Satan starts quoting the Old Testament and said, the Old Testament says 
that you could jump off this and the angels would bear you up in their wings lest you dash your foot, lest you stub your big toe. How about that? That the angels won't let you stub your big toe since you're the son of God, God's king. So take the leap and act independent of God. You don't need to ask God if that's his will for your life. Just do it. Jesus answered, it is also written, verse 7, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. And Satan says to Jesus, all this will I give you. It's a legitimate offer. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, Satan has the power. They abdicated it to him. And all of this will I give you if you'll bow down and worship me. Your destiny on planet earth, Jesus, is to be the king of the world, right? King of the Jews, God's Messiah. You've come to set this world right. There's a cross waiting at the end of the road for you, Jesus. It's going to be ugly. Why don't we just skip that whole chapter and you can just bow down right now and worship Satan and I'll just give it to you without the cross. How about I give you position and power with no suffering or trials? I think that's the path most Americans want to take. It doesn't work. It's not real. Life is a little different than that. And Jesus says, no thanks. Get away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Three times, three tests, three temptations. And then the devil left him and angels came and ministered, attended to him. Now let me sum this up very quickly. All of Jesus' quotations come from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, and 8. You say, I don't care. You do care. And the reason Jesus is quoting that particular piece of Scripture is that the entire temptation scene as recorded by Matthew is set up to follow the Old Testament model of Israel in the wilderness coming into the Promised Land. The whole story is a mirror, it's a vignette one of the other. And Deuteronomy 6 to 8 is the passage of Scripture where Jesus is quoting from what Moses is writing. And Moses is writing that to get the children of Israel ready to go do the biggest thing God ever wanted them to do, which was go into the promised land. They have been 40 years without food in the wilderness. You're saying, I mean, God gave them manna, but... 40 years of privation in the wilderness. 40 years they had to get water in a miraculous way and food in a miraculous way and have shade in a miraculous way. And they go, Jesus goes back to that moment and says, no, that trial and testing proves God's provision in our lives. God's getting us ready for the big thing he wants us to do. I won't shortcut the process, but let me quote what, the, what it looked like in the lives of those who went before me. See, the time in the wilderness was when they were supposed to prove they were faithful to God. That's what it was about. That they would stay with God 
until they got to the promised land. God let them walk through a difficult time, which was an educative process where they learned to trust God and they learned what they were made of. The temptation of Jesus is written on a model that follows that Old Testament model to show you that the two stories are linked together and that what God may be doing during your... Let me just say this. Are you going through a difficulty? Does this information put your difficulty in a new light? That maybe God is doing something in your life to prepare you for the biggest thing he's ever asked you to do. And it's going to be something about ministry, something about making disciples, something about displaying faith, something about how you lead your family, something about uh, investing into others and formation in the lives of other people. Listen, you can't form the lives of other people until you're formed. You can't give until you have something to give them. I know most of you personally, and you want to be spiritual leaders. You can't be a spiritual leader until you get some muscle on your bone. Until you get some depth to your life, then you can pour out to other people. You say, okay, well, I want depth to my life. I'll just listen to more radio preaching. That's not necessarily how you get depth to your life. You're going to have to go through some things. And you're going to have to be faithful through those things and come out. Now, listen, maybe the, I always this, when, I, when I'm going through a difficult season, let he always say to God, okay, God, help me to learn the lesson like in the next five minutes. So that I can, we can just call this done. And we just move on. I don't need a 40-day period of testing. God, I have ADD. I need a 40-minute period of testing. And then just show me what the lesson is and let me say yes and let's move on. That's like saying I want a 40-minute workout program that I can do once a year. And then I'll be strong. But you know that wouldn't work. And so you know that dealing with the struggles of life and leaning into God's goodness and trusting his provision and trusting his faithfulness is how you get this personal depth, how you get this spiritual depth so that you can then lead the lives of other people. So let me ask you, that difficulty you're dealing with, are you learning to trust God in the midst of this? If so, then this is a good thing. It's a good thing. Or when the difficulty comes in your life, are you blaming God and saying, God, you don't love me. Or you wouldn't let this happen to me. God, are you even listening? God, are you even real? That's the other attitude we can have when we're dealing with difficulty. Is your attitude towards God that you're saying, God, help me to learn in this difficult time that you are enough. And you will never leave me. And that you only want my growth and learning through this difficult season. God, use what I'm dealing with right now. Use this difficult boss or this difficult situation to transform me that I can transform others. As I've told you often, I often pray, God, okay, this is tough. We're in a difficult moment right now. God, help me to see what you're trying to teach me. Of course, I have a motive. I want to be out of the trial as quick as possible. But God, help me to see what you're teaching me here's jesus attitude god if it's your will for me to experience hunger then i will not shortcut the process i will not circumvent the hunger i'll embrace the hunger and say this is the will of god for my life and i know that god will provide when it's time because he always provides for his children he's good he's kind he's gracious he never leaves us he never forsakes us And I'll just lean into the goodness of God. Let me end where I began. 
there are three things that are preparatory for doing ministry, leadership in, in spiritual ways. Discipleship and baptism and testing. But all three of these are predicated upon a thesis question, and that question is, who's in control of your life? If you can answer this question, the other three will come easily. If you can't settle this question, then the other three will not happen easily in your life. If God's completely in control, follow him in discipleship, follow him in baptism. And when you go through the difficult season, just lean into God and say, God, if this is your will, let's sail on through it together. Show me what you're trying to show me. Teach me what you want to teach me. I want some 18-inch biceps. I mean, just have some fun with God. God, I want some spiritual muscle. God, I want to be able to change someone else's life. So God, in this moment, let me trust you. Let me lean into your goodness. And you give me the depth of spirituality like a reservoir that I could then pour into other people's lives. I'll look other people, let me say it another way. I'll be able to look into the eyes of other people and say, God's going to get you through this. I'll be able to look into the lives of other people and say, God helped me through this. I'll be able to say to other people, no, God hasn't abandoned you. He's with you right now. Lean into his love and his graciousness. If it's God's will for our life to be hungry for a few days, okay, then we'll be hungry for a few days. If it's God's will to be baptized, then what will we do? If it's God's will for us to be discipled, what will we do? Get involved with discipleship. These are the preparatory steps that Jesus did before he launched his ministry. He didn't have to do any of these things. But he did them because God was completely in control of his life. And if it's God's will for your life, Jesus says, my answer is yes. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Thank you for your patience. That was a lot of lesson to deliver in this short amount of time. In this still moment, every one of us is faced with a couple of questions. That big question, who's really in control of your life, that, that's the one, the biggie. If you've never gotten on your knees at an altar in a church and just cried out to God, God, if I haven't told you lately, you're 100% in control of my life. This would be a great moment to slip out of your seat and just come acknowledge who's really in control. And I know it's a little weird the way we do this. Maybe I, I, I don't know who started this in a church service where we come and kneel and pray. But there's something real about it. And maybe it's supposed to be a little awkward. Maybe it's supposed to be humbling. Maybe it's supposed to be a little bit inconvenient. You know, John said about Jesus, I'm not worthy to unlace his sandals or carry them. Maybe that is the point. That we've not humbled ourselves before God and said, God, I bow before you. And I just want to say you're 100% in charge of my life. For everyone who is a believer here this morning, can you settle the three issues that you're faced with? In order for God to really work through your life, you're going to have to be a disciple. That means submitting to someone and walking weekly through a process. You're going to have to be baptized. 
And you're going to have to walk through difficult seasons without turning your back on God. You're going to have to go through difficulties with faithfulness. Now, all three of those are actionable this morning for you. Many of you have already been baptized. Great. For those who haven't, you need to find one of our deacons or elders this morning and say, hey, I need to schedule baptism in the coming weeks. We'll have a little class with you to explain everything, and we'll set a baptism date. Eric's one of our deacons right here on the front row right now. You just find him after church and just say, Eric, I need to be a part of the baptism that's upcoming. If you need discipleship, I want you to see Miss Erica, Chris Yancey, someone at the information desk say, I really need to get involved with discipleship, and they'll know how to help you. I want to make an appeal to everyone here because you're either going through a difficult season, coming out of a difficult season, or heading to a difficult season. It's part of what it means to be a human. Can you just say to God right now, God, through the difficulties, rather than withdraw from you, God, I'm just going to lean into your love. I'm just going to lean into your ability to take care of me. I'm going to trust your love and your goodness and your provision. God, I'm going to trust that you love me and you'll never leave me. God, I'm going to trust you to take care of me because you're 100% in charge of my life. And if I don't have you, I've got nothing. If you're here this morning, you've never received Christ as your Savior. Don't, don't leave until you've settled this. Come and find one of our church leaders here after the service and say, I need to pray and receive Christ as my Savior. And let someone show you how to make the biggest and best decision you've ever made. To put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we are confronted this morning with the Word of God. And Lord, when you speak through your Word, it's, it's home. And it's at home with us this morning. There are some very clear steps that every follower of you needs to take. And you've showed us what those are. You did them yourself. And you set a great example for us. Thank you, Lord. Lord, give us the same willingness of your spirit to do it because it's the will of God, because it's what you require and you want from us to do. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray for their salvation in the next five, ten minutes. God, that you would open their heart and they'd be receptive to praying and calling upon you as their Lord and Savior. God, I want to pray for anybody here this morning, well, probably all of us, God, now that I think about it, that are dealing with difficulties in life. God, we love you so much, but it pales in comparison with how much you love us. And so, God, we lean into your love and your care and your provision. 
God, so often in my own life, when I've gone through a difficult season, my response was to say, you didn't love me. Where are you? And I withdrew from you. And God, I see now that those were all the wrong responses. God, I pray that I wouldn't do that again. God, I pray that for our people here this morning, as we go through difficult seasons, rather than say, where is God? We'll say, God, I feel your love. And we'll just lean into your goodness. God, I pray, it's a hard prayer, but God, I pray that you'd raise up some really strong, strong spiritual disciple makers here. And God, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to pray it because I know that praying for that means that some people have to go through trials in order to get strong. So God, I'm in a bit of a quandary, but let me pray like this. God, your will be done. Lord, as you showed us, you were willing to follow the will of the Father. Give us the same heart and willingness to follow the will of the Father for our own lives. God, we love you so much. Lord, thank you for teaching us through your word. In Jesus' name we